0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories of the Old West. Today, The Story of the Outlaw, A Study of the Western Desperado, by Emerson Huff, written in 1905. And now, Chapter 1 of The Story of the Outlaw. Energy and action may be of two sorts, good or bad, this being as well as we can phrase it in human affairs. The live wires that net our streets are more dangerous than all the bad men the country ever knew but we call electricity on the whole good in its action. We lay it under law, but sometimes it breaks out and has its own way. These outbreaks will occur until the end of time in live wires and vital men. Each land in the world produces its own men individually bad, and in time other bad men who kill them for the general good. There are bad Chinamen, bad Filipinos, bad Mexicans and Indians and Negroes and bad white men, The white bad man is the worst bad man of the world, and the prize-taking bad man of the lot is the western white bad man. Turn the white man loose in a land free of restraint, such as was always that golden fleece land, vague, shifting, and transitory, known as the American West, and he simply reverts to the ways of the Teutonic and Gothic forests. The civilized empire of the West has grown in spite of this, because of that other strange germ, the love of law, anciently implanted in the soul of the Anglo-Saxon, that there was little difference between the bad man and the good man who went out after him was frequently demonstrated in the early roaring days of the West. The religion of progress and civilization meant very little to the western town marshal, who sometimes, or often, was a peace officer chiefly because he was a good fighting man. We band together and elect political representatives who do not represent us at all. We elect executive officers who execute nothing but their own wishes. We pay innumerable policemen to take from our shoulders the burden of self-protection, and the policemen do not do this thing. Back of all, the law is the undelegated personal right, that vague thing which, nonetheless, is recognized in all the laws and charters of the world, as England and France of old, and Russia today, may show. This undelegated personal right is in each of us, or ought to be, If there is in you no hot blood to break into flame and set you arbiter for yourself in some sharp, crucial moment, then God pity you, for no woman ever loved you if she could find anything else to love, and you are fit neither as man nor citizen. As the individual retains an undelegated right, so does the body social. We employ politicians, but at heart most of us despise politicians and love fighting men. Society and law are not absolutely wise nor absolutely right, "'but only as a compromise, relatively wise and right. "'The bad man, so-called, may have been in large part relatively bad. "'This much we may say scientifically, and without the slightest cheapness. "'It does not mean that we shall waste any maudlin sentiment over a desperado, "'and certainly it does not mean that we shall have anything but contempt "'for the pretender at desperadoism. "'Who and what was the bad man? "'Scientifically and historically he was even as you and I.' Whence did he come? From any and all places. What did he look like? He came in all sorts and shapes, all colors and sizes, just as cowards do. As to knowing him, the only way was by trying him. His reputation, true or false, just or unjust, became, of course, the herald of the bad man in due time. The killer of a western town might be known throughout the state, or in several states, His reputation might long outlast that of able statesmen and public benefactors. What distinguished the bad man in peculiarity from his fellow man? Why was he better with weapons? What is courage in the last analysis? We ought to be able to answer these questions in a purely scientific way. We have machines for photographing relative quickness of thought and muscular action. We are able to record the varying speeds of impulse transmission in the nerves of different individuals. If you are picking out a bad man... Would you select one who, on the machine, showed a dilatory nerve response? Hardly. The relatively fitness for a man to be bad, to become extraordinarily quick and skillful with weapons, could, without doubt, be predetermined largely by these scientific measurements. Of course, having no thought machines in the early West, they got at the matter by experimenting, and so, very often, by a graveyard route. You could not always stop to feel the pulse of a suspected killer. The use of firearms with swiftness and accuracy was necessary in the calling of the desperado, after fate had marked him and set him apart for the inevitable, though possibly long deferred, and... This skill with weapons was a natural gift in the case of nearly every man who attained great reputation, whether as killer of victims, or as killer of killers. Practice assisted in proficiency, but a wild bill, or a slade, or a Billy the Kid, was born, and not made... Quickness in nerve action is usually backed with good digestion, and hard life in the open is good medicine for the latter. This, however, does not wholly cover the case. A slow man might also be a brave man. Sooner or later, if he went into the desperado business on either side of the game, he would fall before the man who was brave as himself and a fraction faster with the gun. There were unknown numbers of potential bad men who died mute and inglorious after a life spent at a desk or a plow. They might have been bad if matters had shaped right for that. Each war brings out its own heroes from unsuspected places. Each sudden emergency summons its own fit man. Say that a man took to the use of weapons, and found himself arbiter of life and death with lesser animals, and able to grant them either at a distance. He went on, pleased with his growing skill with firearms. He discovered that as the sword had in one age of the world lengthened the human arm, so did the six-shooter, that epochal instrument, INVENTED at PRICELY THAT TIME IN THE AMERICAN LIFE WHEN THE HUMAN ARM NEEDED LENGTHENING. EXTEND AND STRENGTHEN HIS ARM, AND MAKE HIM AND ALL MEN EQUAL. THE USER OF WEAPONS FELT HIS POWERS INCREASED. SO NOW, IN TIME, THERE CAME TO HIM A MOMENT OF DANGER. THERE WAS HIS ENEMY. THERE WAS THE AFFRONT, THE CHALLENGE. PERHAPS IT WAS MALE AGAINST MALE, A MATTER OF SEX, PROLIFIC ALWAYS IN BLOODSHED. IT MIGHT BE A MATTER OF PROPERTY, "'or perhaps it was some taunt as to his own personal "'courage. Perhaps "'alcohol came into the question, as "'was often the case. For one "'reason or the other, it came to the ordeal "'of combat. It was the "'undelegated right of one individual against "'that of another. The law "'was not invoked. The law would not "'serve. Even as the quicker "'set of nerves flashed into action, "'the arm shot forward, and there smote "'the point of flame as did once the point of steel. "'The victim fell, his own weapon clutched in his hand, a fraction too late. The law cleared the killer. It was self-defense. It was an even break, his fellow men said. It was an even break, said the killer to himself. An even break, him or me. But perhaps the repetition of this did not serve to blot out a certain mental picture. I've had a bad man tell me that he killed a second man to get rid of the mental image of his first victim. But this exigency might arise again. Indeed, most frequently did arise. Again, the embryo bad man was the quicker. His self-approbation now, perhaps, began to grow. This was the crucial time of his life. He might go on now and become a bad man, or he might cheapen and become an imitation desperado. In either event, his third man left him still more confident. His courage and his skill in weapons gave him assuredness and ease at the time of an encounter. He was now becoming a specialist. Time to the rest, until at length they buried him. We'll return to our story. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now back to the story of the outlaw. Emerson Howe, 1905. The bad men of genuine sort rarely looked the part assigned to him in the popular imagination. The long-haired blusterer, adorned with a dialect that never was spoken, "'serves very well in fiction about the West. "'But that's not the real thing. "'The most dangerous man was apt to be quiet and smooth-spoken. "'When an antagonist blustered and threatened, "'the most dangerous man only felt rising in his own soul, keen and stern, that strange exultation "'which often comes with combat for the man naturally brave. "'A Western officer of established reputation once said to me, "'while speaking of a recent personal difficulty "'into which he'd been forced, "'I hadn't been in anything of that sort for years.' and I wished I was out of it. Then I said to myself, "'Is it true that you're getting old? Have you lost your nerve?' Then all at once the old feeling came over me, and I was just like I used to be. I felt calm and happy, and I laughed after that. I jerked my gun and shoved it into his stomach. He put up his hands and apologized. "'I will give you a hundred dollars now,' he said, "'if you will tell me where you got that gun. I suppose I was a trifle quick for him.'" The virtue of the drop— "'was eminently respected among bad men. "'Sometimes, however, men were killed in the last desperate conviction "'that no man on earth was as quick as they. "'What came near being an incident of that kind "'was related by a noted western sheriff. "'Down on the edge of the Pecos Valley,' said he, "'a dozen miles below old Fort Sumner, "'there used to be a little saloon, "'and I once captured a man there. "'He came in from somewhere east of our territory "'and was wanted for murder.' THE REWARD OFFERED FOR HIM WAS $1,200. SINCE HE WAS A STRANGER, NONE OF US KNEW HIM, BUT THE SHERIFF'S description SENT IN SAID HE HAD A FRECKLED FACE, SMALL HANDS, AND A RED SPOT IN ONE EYE. I HEARD THAT THERE WAS A NEW SALOON KEEPER IN THERE, AND I THOUGHT HE MIGHT BE THE MAN, SO I TOOK A DEPUTY AND WENT DOWN ONE DAY TO SEE ABOUT IT. I TOLD MY DEPUTY NOT TO SHOOT UNTIL he SAW ME GO AFTER MY GUN. I DIDN'T WANT TO HOLD THE MAN UP UNLESS HE WAS THE RIGHT ONE, AND I WANTED TO BE SURE ABOUT THAT IDENTIFICATION MARK IN THE EYE. Now, when a bartender's waiting on you, he'll never look you in the face until just as you raise your glass to drink. I told my deputy that we would order a couple of drinks, and so get a chance to look this fellow in the eye. When he looked up, I did look him in the eye, and there was the red spot. I dropped my glass and jerked my gun and covered him, but he just wouldn't put up his hands for a while. I didn't want to kill him, but I thought I surely would have to. He kept both of his hands resting on the bar and I knew he had a gun within three feet of him somewhere. At last, slowly, he gave in. I treated him well, as I always did a prisoner, told him we would square it if we had made any mistakes. We put irons on him and started for Las Vegas, New Mexico with him in a wagon. The next morning, out on the trail, he confessed everything to me. We turned him over and later he was tried and hung. I always considered him to be a pretty bad man, So far as the result was concerned, he might about as well have gone after his gun. I certainly thought that that was what he was going to do. He had sand. I could just see him standing there and balancing the chances in his mind. Another of the nerviest men I ever ran up against, the same officer went on, reflectively. I met when I was sheriff in Doña Ana County, New Mexico. I was in Las Cruces when there came in a sheriff from over in the Indian Nation's looking for a fugitive who had broken out of a penitentiary after killing a guard and another man or so. This sheriff told me that the criminal in question was the most desperate man he'd ever known, and that no matter how we came on him, he would put up a fight and we would have to kill him before we could take him. We located our man, who was cooking on a ranch six or eight miles out of town. I told the sheriff to stay in town because the man would know him and would not know us. I had a Mexican deputy along with me. I put out my deputy on one side of the house and went in. I found my man just wiping his hands on a towel after washing his dishes. I threw down on him, and he answered by smashing me in the face, and then jumping to the window like a squirrel. I caught at him and tore the shirt off his back, but I didn't stop him. Then I ran out of the door and caught him on the porch. I did not want to kill him, so I struck him over the head with the handcuffs I had ready for him. He dropped but came up like a flash and struck me so hard with his fist that I was badly jarred. We fought hammer and tongs for a while, but at length he broke away, sprang to the door, and ran down the hall. He was going to his room after his gun. At that moment my Mexican deputy came in, and having no sentiment about it, just wailed away and shot him in the back, killing him on the spot. The doctor said when they examined this man's body that he was the most perfect physical specimen they'd ever seen. I can testify that he was a fighter. The sheriff offered me the reward, but I wouldn't take any of it. I told him that I would be over in his country sometime and that I was sure he would do as much for me if I needed his help. I hope that if I do have to go after his particular sort of bad people, I'll be lucky in getting the first start on my man. That man was as desperate a fighter as I ever saw or expect to see. Give a man of that stripe any kind of a show, and he's going to kill you. That's all. "'He knows that he has no chance under the law. "'Sometimes they got away with desperate chances, too, "'as many a peace officer has learned to his cost. "'The only way to go after such a man is to go prepared, "'and then to give him no earthly show to get the best of you. "'I don't mean that an officer ought to shoot down a man "'if he has a show to take his prisoner alive, "'but I do mean that he ought to remember "'that he may be pitted against a man "'who is just as brave as he is, "'and just as good with a gun, "'and who is fighting for his life.' Of course, such a man as this, whether confronted by an officer of the law or by another man against whom he has a personal grudge, or who has in any way challenged him to the ordeal of weapons, was steadfast in his own belief that he was as brave as any, and as quick with weapons. Thus, until at length he met his master in the law of human progress and civilization, he simply added to his own list of victims, or was added to the list of another of his own sort. For a very long time, moreover, There existed a great region on the frontier where the law could not protect. There was no good reason, therefore, for a man's learning to depend upon his own courage and strength and skill. He had nothing else to protect him, whether he was good or bad. In the typical days of the western bad man, life was the property of the individual and not of society, and one man placed his life against another's as the only way of solving hard, personal problems. Those days and those conditions brought out some of the boldest and most reckless men the earth has ever seen. Before we freely criticize them, we ought fully to understand them. We'll return with the story of the outlaw by Emerson Huff right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. The foregoing words were written in 1855 by a historian to whom the West of the Trans-Missouri remains still a sealed book, but they cover very fitly the appeal of a wild and unknown land to a bold, a criminal, or an adventurous population. Of the Trans-Missouri as we of today think of it, no one can write more accurately and understandingly than Theodore Roosevelt, President of the United States, who thus describes the land he knew and loved. He wrote, There are two states of society perhaps equally bad for the promotion of good morals and virtue, the densely populated city, and the wilderness. In the former, a single individual loses his identity in the mass, and, being unnoticed, is without the view of the public, and can, to a certain extent, commit crimes with impunity. In the latter, the population is sparse, and, the strong arm of the law not being extended, his crimes are in a measure unobserved, or, if so, frequently power is wanting to bring him to justice. Hence, both are the resort of desperadoes. In the early settlement of the West, the borders were infested with desperadoes flying from justice. Suspected or convicted felons escaped from the grasp of the law, who sought safety. The counterfeiter and the robber there found a secure retreat, or a new theater for crime. Some distance beyond the Mississippi, stretching from Texas to North Dakota, and westward to the Rocky Mountains, lies the Plains Country. This is a region of light rainfall, "'where the ground is clad with short grass, "'while cottonwood trees fringe the courses "'of the winding plain streams, "'streams that are alternately turbid torrents "'and then mere dwindling threads of water. "'The great stretches of natural pasture "'are broken by gray sagebrush plains "'and tracts of strangely shaped and colored badlands, "'sun-scorched wastes in summer "'and in winter arctic in their iron desolation. "'Beyond the plains rise the rocky mountains,' Their flanks covered with coniferous woods, but the trees are small and do not ordinarily grow very close together. Toward the north, the forest becomes denser and the peaks higher, and glaciers creep down toward the valleys from the fields of everlasting snow. The brooks are brawling, trout-filled torrents. The swift rivers roam over rapid and cataract, on their way to one or the other of the two great oceans. Southwest of the Rockies, evil and terrible deserts stretch for leagues and leagues, Mere waterless wastes of sandy plain and barren mountain, broken here and there by narrow strips of fertile ground. Rain rarely falls here, and there are no clouds to dim the brazen sun. The rivers run in deep canyons or are swallowed by the burning sand. The smaller watercourses are dry throughout the greater part of the year. Beyond this desert region rise the sunny Sierras of California, with their flower clad slopes and groves of giant trees, and north of them along the coast. The rain shrouded mountain chains of Oregon and Washington, matted with the towering growth of the mighty evergreen forest. Such then was this western land, so long the home of the outdweller who foreran civilization, and who sometimes took matters of law into his own hands. For purposes of convenience, we may classify him as the bad man of the mountains, and the bad man of the plains, because he was usually found in and around the crude localities where raw resources and property were being developed and because, previous to the advent of agriculture, the two vast wilderness resources were minerals and cattle. The mines of California and the Rockies, the cattle of the Great Plains. Write the story of these, and you have much of the story of Western desperadoism. For in spite of the fact that the ideal desperado was one who did not rob or kill for gain, the most usual form of early desperadoism had to do with attempts at unlawfully acquiring another man's property. The discovery of gold in California caused a flood of bold men, good and bad, to pour into that remote region from all corners of the earth. Books could be written, and have been written, on the days of terror in California, when the vigilantes took the law into their own hands. There came the time later when the rich placers of Montana and other territories were pouring out a stream of gold rivaling that of the days of 49, and when a tide of restless and reckless characters reigning, resigning or escaping from both armies in the Civil War, mingled with many others who heard also the imperious call of a land of gold, and rolled westward across the plains by every means of conveyance or locomotion then possible to man. The last home of the bad man, the old cattle range, is covered by a passage from an earlier work. The breeding of a hundred minor pathways, the long trail lay like a vast rope connecting the cattle country of the south with that of the north. Lying loose or coiling... It ran for more than 2,000 miles along the eastern ridge of the Rocky Mountains, sometimes close in at their feet, again hundreds of miles away across the hard tablelands or the well-flowered prairies. It traversed in a fair line the vast land of Texas, curled over the Indian nations, over Kansas, Colorado, Nebraska, Wyoming, and Montana, and bent in wide, overlapping circles as far west as Utah and Nevada, as far east as Missouri, Iowa, Illinois, "'and as far north as the British possessions. "'Even today you may trace plainly its former course, "'from its faint beginnings in the lazy land of Mexico, "'the Ararat of the Cattle Range. "'It is distinct across Texas, "'and multifold still in the Indian lands. "'Its many intermingling paths "'still scar the iron surface of the neutral strip, "'and the plows have not buried "'all the old furrows in the plains of Kansas. "'Parts of the path still remain visible "'in the mountain lands of the far north.' You may see the ribbons banding the hillsides today along the valley of the Stillwater and along the Yellowstone and toward the source of the Missouri. The hoof marks are beyond the Muscle Shell, over the Badlands and the the Coolies, and the Flat Prairies, and far up into the land of the long coals you may see, even today if you like, the shadow of that unparalleled pathway, the long trail of the cattle range. History has no other like it. In eighteen seventy one over six hundred thousand cattle crossed the Red River for the northern markets. Abilene, Newton, Wichita, Ellsworth, Great Bend, Dodge, flared out into a swift and sometimes evil blossoming. The long trail, which long ago had found the black corn lands of Illinois and Missouri, now crowded to the west, until it had reached Utah and Nevada, and penetrated every open park and mesa and valley of Colorado and found all the high plains of Wyoming. Cheyenne and Laramie became common words now, and drovers spoke wisely of the dangers of the Platte, as a year before they had mentioned those of the Red River or the Arkansas. Nor did the trail pause in its irresistible push to the north until it had found the last of the five great transcontinental lines far in the British provinces. The long trail of the cattle range was done. By magic, the cattle industry had spread over the entire west. These were flourishing times for the Western Desperado, and he became famous and, as it were, typical at about this era. Perhaps this was due in part to the fact that the railroads carried with them the telegraph and the newspaper, so that records and reports were made of what had for many years gone unreported. Now, too, began the influx of transients, who saw the Wild West hurriedly and wrote of it as a strange and dangerous country. The wild citizens of California and Montana in mining days, Passed almost unnoticed, except in fiction. The wild men of the Middle Plains now began to have a record in facts, or partial facts, as brought to the notice of the reading public which was seeking news of the new lands. A strange and turbulent day now drew swiftly on. Thanks for joining us for 1001 Stories from the Old West. We bring a new story every other Sunday night, and there are many more scheduled to come. Hope you enjoyed it. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. We'll be back in two weeks, Sunday night, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.